Today we're talking to a Christian scientist, that is, a bona fide real scientist who has surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. His name is Dr. Michael Strauss. Dr. Strauss happens to be one of those rare breed, I don't think they're all that rare actually, who believes that there is no division or separation between faith and science. Michael and I invite you to join us for a cup of coffee as Dr. Strauss explains how faith and science fit together like hand in glove. Dr. Michael Strauss, you're here with me sitting in a little cafe having a casual conversation about Christianity, the church, and secular society. Yeah, it's great to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a professor. I'm a professor of physics at the University of Oklahoma, so I teach and do research. My research is in experimental particle physics, which means I study the smallest structure of the universe, quarks. Higgs bosons, things like that. Um, my current research is conducted at a laboratory in Geneva, Switzerland called CERN, where we uh, accelerate protons to nearly the speed of light and smash them together 40 million times a second and see what comes out to study the structure of the universe. It's really fun. It, it's got to take great aim. I can't even hit a target yeah. from 22 well, feet away. Can you imagine that the beam of protons is about as thick as a human hair moving the speed of light, and yeah. you're smashing in on another beam of protons moving the same speed in That's the opposite direction. That's good aim right there. It's one of the most complex machines humans build. Yeah. It sounds like it might be. Yeah, it's fun. Being in the job that you're in at the University of Oklahoma, and many of our audience are in secular universities or Christian universities, but young people that are struggling to remain holy, remain in the church, young believers that want to walk the Christian walk and may have, be having a little bit of a time of it yeah. uh, being in the environment they are. You live in that environment as a professor. Obviously, you deal with students all the time, probably many of them believers. My question to you would be the question that our audience would have for you, our young audience, is what tips, techniques, methods, attitudes should yeah. young Christian believers who are involved in university and after, I and mean, they're working and young professionals in their first job could run across the same issues? Yeah. Well, let me talk a little bit about, you know, where I think we are as society in general because um, this is a great question. I mean, living the Christian life has always been a challenge, but the U.S. has been a unique country for the first 200 years of its existence. It's a country that, in general, whether or not people were Christians, Christian principles were at the forefront of what we do. And things began to change, you know, the 50s and 60s. Um, 1950s and 60s, right? And, and now we are basically a culture that is certainly not Christian in any sense of the word. And I have friends who are my generation who say, who, who see this as, you know, a terrible thing. And my, my response is, no cultures throughout history have really been Christian in general. And the U.S. had a special privileged place for a couple hundred years. That's a good point. And, and now we're going back to the norm. And, and that makes it much harder for young people and millennials. Because where you and my generation grew up in a culture that at least on the outside looked Christian, yes. they are now growing up in a culture that's hostile towards Christianity. Most of us are not going to have to worry about being crucified, right. even though, but, but it does present bigger challenges. Instead of walking along with the culture and being a little bit different because you're a Christian, 
today's Christians have to truly be, you know, go against the grain of the culture in many ways. And, and that makes it more challenging. So they are living in a culture that says your Christian values go against society. And so it's much more challenging to say, well, how do I live out my Christian faith in a culture that is certainly non-Christian, if not anti-Christian? There are forces in our culture, in our society, that seem to be telling young people, telling everybody actually, that if you don't have diversity, if you don't have a variety of opinions on things, that uh, you're not you're not culturally acceptable. Well, I think diversity is important. I mean, I I look for diversity when I'm looking for um, when I'm admitting students. I want a diverse culture. I think diversity brings a much better environment to learn different ideas. But diversity in our culture has come to mean no matter what you believe, I have to accept it. And I think that's where we've kind of crossed the line. Diversity and tolerance used to mean, as, as we all know, I'm going to respect you as a person, I'm going to treat you with dignity even if I disagree with you. Yes. Tolerance now means I can't disagree with you. And, and again, that's not something you and I had to deal with when we were growing up, but it is something today's younger generation has to deal with. How can I live a Christian life and be accepted as a tolerant person in a society where tolerance says I have to agree with everyone's ideas. And so I think it's much harder to navigate as a Christian, right? You have to navigate in a way that's, that demonstrates what tolerance used to mean, love and dignity of the other person, and even acceptance of them as a human being Yes, in a much more challenging way that still says I disagree with you because if, if that idea that I can love and accept you as a person and show you dignity um, and still disagree with you, if that's cross-cultural or anti-cultural, then you have to navigate it really carefully to try to demonstrate. I think it's possible, but I think it's really challenging in today's culture. Well, tell me what you think the biggest challenges are with the students that you interface with from a day-to-day -day period. Well, because I'm a physicist, the challenges that students bring to me are often intellectual. I personally believe most of our challenges with God as humans are emotional and willful. God doesn't act in my life the way I want. He brings challenges I don't like, and I say, where are you, God? And he's silent sometimes, right? But the ones that students bring to me more often are the intellectual ones. Uh, Jesus said to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Yes. And we all have issues with God with our heart and strength, but the ones with the mind are the ones that students usually come to me with. So they have to do with, you know, how can I be an intellectual thinking person and believe the Bible? How can I, how can I accept what science has shown to be clearly true and still hold, believe that the Bible is God's word? Um, well, how would you answer some of those questions? Um, well, that, that's a good question. I personally think that the Bible is God's inspired word to humans and that nature is God's creation. And I think both the Bible and nature are results of the same author's hand. And so I think they should agree completely and in, 
and the way I look at both nature and scripture, they do. So that's one thing I will do. I will tell students, um, let me give you some resources that actually talk about how a good understanding of science and a good understanding of scripture mesh really seamlessly. And, and this is a nice thing, right? If, if, for instance, the story of creation in Genesis is true and accurate and agrees with modern science, then doesn't that give you some confidence that maybe the other things the Bible says are it true should, should and accurate? It? it should, right. What are some of those resources that you hand out? Um, so I have written a book. It's called The Creator Revealed. Um, it talks about how um, I'm what you and I have talked. I'm what you call an old earth creationist. I believe God used the Big Bang to create the universe. And I think that's completely compatible with what Genesis says. So there are lots of Christians who believe that. Sure. Um, most scientifically oriented. I would say most people in the church, in a conservative evangelical church, probably are still default young earth creationists, okay. thinking the earth is six to 10,000 years old. Um, in our church, we have both. This is what we would call a non-essential. It's not something oh. to split over. It's something to discuss, well, to I'm, tolerate, right? Yeah, to tolerate. Yeah. I myself am a young earth creationist. Mm -hmm. I, can, I will go speak at churches, and most of the churches, um, I would say, you know, the majority of people sitting in the chairs are still young earth creationists. Yeah. My, 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 our executive pastor is, many of our elders are young earth creationists. We have this mixture. Yeah. Let's see, so where were we? we were talking well, we were about? talking about the resources and you mentioned oh, right. your book. So, so, so there are a lot of, thank you, there are a lot of great books on how science and scripture correlate, particularly with the Big Bang, but they're all written at a pretty technical level. And, and as I would give these resources to people, um, the, the reasons to believe without the two in the middle is a great resources, resource. Their website is reasons.org. Um, but um, as I would give their resources to people, they would say, even college educated people, these are, these are too technical, I don't understand them. Yes. So one of my strengths is to be able to take technical things and um, discuss them in easy conversational language. So that's what this book does. It talks about how the science we've discovered points to God and how Genesis points to the science we've discovered. All right, so for the benefit in, of our in audience. In a non-technical way, yeah. And because you have this gift from God that you can explain these things in this way, explain one, what's the hot one? No, I think when it comes to the Bible and science, the two big issues that science has accepted that Christians struggle with is the origin of the universe and the age of the universe. And okay. Whether or not it was the Big Bang and then whether or not evolution occurred. I see. And those tend to be the intellectual scientific issues that people um, struggle with. Let's take evolution. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's take I know it or you're not a biologist, right. but yeah. you're head and shoulders above many people anyway. I've studied it a lot. Yeah. Yes. So tell us how would you equip a, a millennial, a young person, yeah. along the lines of evolution if they're tending to believe in it? Yeah. So let me first say that, you know, I'm not an expert, but I've studied it. And Christian. Here's the, the biggest thing. So if I was to ask the question, did the Big Bang occur, and, and with that, is the universe 14 billion years old? Yes. And did evolution occur? Those are, very, first of all, two very separate questions. There are Christians who don't believe in either the Big Bang or evolution. 
young earth creationists. They're Christians who believe in the Big Bang, but not evolution. Yes. Called old earth creationists or progressive creationists. And they're Christians who believe in the Big Bang and evolution, evolutionary creationists. Where do you put yourself in that? I'm probably in the middle category right now, the progressive creation, but not because of the Bible, because of the science. Yes. So let's get to that. When I study the science for evolution. So you, just to be clear for our audience, you are not, you do not believe in theistic evolution. Not at this point. Okay. And the reason is I don't think particle... Theistic evolution being... That God used evolution to create human beings. Correct. Create all life. Yes. Right? Okay. Continue. Um, so that we all have a common ancestor. But again, the reason is science. And in particle physics, we only make a discovery if there's a 1 in 3.5 million chance we're wrong. So if I write a paper and say I've discovered something new, I can tell you that I've looked at all the data and there's a 1 in 3.5 million chance I'm wrong. Where did the 3.5 come from? It's a five standard deviation effect. Okay. And that's we don't need to go into it any more than that. Right. It's math. <laughs> it's math and statistics all rolled into one. Um, so that kind of certainty doesn't exist in biological systems in general. And so when I look at the evidence for evolution, it doesn't reach my standard of scientific acceptance, what I would call discoveries. And when I look at information content in DNA and hear the explanations for how that supposedly evolved through uh, random mutation and genetic transfer and natural selection, um, it just, it sounds more like a just so story, like than a scientific theory. Now, most Christians who work in those fields of genetics and biology are theistic evolutionists, or now we, the, the term tends to be evolutionary creationist. But, so I respect them. Um, so the first thing I would say to the person struggling with this is, look, there are Christians who believe in the Big Bang and don't. This is not an issue that you should reject the Bible or reject your Christianity for. And once you establish that, and we can go into why I believe that even more, then you're free to not ask the question, is God the creator and is the Bible true, but just how did God do the creation? What are the major arguments that you would give a Christian in plain language of why evolution just isn't tenable? It just doesn't make well, sense. I, you talked about information a yeah, minute ago so, in the DNA. That's a good place to start. Yeah, I think whenever we see complex information, it, it requires an intelligence. So I think what DNA tells us is there's an intelligent creator. The fact that there's information there points to God. Um, there's no scenario for how life started. Now, the evolutionists will tell you the, the origin of life is not part of the theory of evolution. Right. But if I was a naturalist, not believing in any divine being, I would ha really have to struggle with the origin of life. Yes. Um, to me, the fossil record does not contain the kind of gradual changes that you would expect in evolution. And that's what Darwin mandated. Darwin mandated that, and in fact, you know, there are... In order are, to accept Darwinian evolution, didn't he say in Origin of Species that if my my theory would totally break down if it could be demonstrated yeah. that complex organisms arise without, and how did he yeah, put it, I, slow, gradual, yeah. incremental so, changes. Again, the, the people who believe in evolution would argue those things are apparent in the fossil record. Okay. But when I look at the fossil record, it looks a lot more like explosions of life followed by 
um, life dying out, you know, species dying out, and then in other explosions of life. And then there's genetic evidence. Um, evolutionary evolution should make predictions about what's in the gene. And I know there are certainly, you know, genetic similarities between chimpanzees and humans and others. There's it's there's this common model, but. For instance, there used to be this thing called junk DNA, which was DNA that seemed to have no purpose. In the and there aren't as many junk DNAs well, around this as, is the as point. there used the, to the be. The evolutionists said, of course, our theory predicts there should be lots of junk DNA. Now we're learning that most of that DNA has a purpose. Yes. And so, you know, every time, as we get more information, to me, again, as a particle physicist, the predictions of evolution keep failing, so they have to change the theory. T to me, any theory that is so flexible that no matter what the data says, I'm going to accept it, has some problems. So here, here's my thought. This dogma that evolution works is holding back evolutionary biologists from looking for better mechanisms. And I think that if God used evolution, we're going to find a mechanism for evolution that looks designed. Yes. And then the biologists are going to have to say, hmm, this looks programmed into nature, but we know it's not. You know, I'd like to talk about something that's more up your alley. Good. Let's get off of evolution for a minute, right? <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about particle physics. You know, uh, you were at NC State here in Raleigh a couple of nights ago, and I went to see you. And you talked about something that was close to my heart, because when I went to engineering school, I studied physics. And I was not a believer in those days. Mm. Uh, Dr. Strauss, and I remember the professor, specifically I can see him now in front of the board talking about the law of gravity. Mm. And he explained 32 feet per second squared on Earth, the law of gravity is uh, attraction between celestial bodies. He went, he went all through this, but he never said what gravity was. Mm. And I think somebody in the class, even I don't think it was me, but asked him, well, where does gravity even come from? Let's start there, if you don't mind. Let's go upstream a little bit from this. And he could not answer the question. That impacted me. Huh. Scientists today know, and you talked about the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the law of gravity, and uh, there's a fourth one there, too, the electromagnetic yep. force. Those basic forces in nature, the laws can be described, but they can't be accounted for. And that's intriguing to me. Yeah, you know, so there are scientists who will argue that science really just describes how nature works. And to me, there's a difference between describing how something works and really understanding the why. You know, I can describe how a building is constructed and all the forces that hold it up, but that doesn't build the building. And and I think you know, there are scientists who who, dis, who will define science as, as studying the natural world and only coming up with natural explanations. And if you can only come up with natural explanations, then the best you can do with the why is to explain how it works. So in fact, um, Sean Carroll, who's an atheistic cosmologist, really a, a, a thoughtful atheist, has this great paper on um, why there's something rather than nothing. I wrote about it a little bit in my blog. And he basically says that the universe just is. It's gonna, that's his explanation. But he, des he describes the difference between answering the why question with the mechanism that makes it work. And, and he's not gonna touch the second one. <laughs> because to him, science can't do that. All it can do is answer the how does it work question. Right. But it, his, he starts out with, I can't, I'm not going to answer 
what you and I would call the real why questions. You know, he's gonna, his answer to the why is I can write an equation that describes it. That's the why. Most scientists think if I could write an equation that describes it, then I've solved the problem. But Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, talks about the fact that, in, in his words, the equations don't have fire, they don't have life, they don't, they describe, they don't create. And, and most scientists won't Stephen take... Stephen Hawking said that? Yeah. Isn't that a uh, theistic uh, expression? You know, atheists say things that sound theistic <laughs> all the time. My, my daughter, when she was in college, said to me, Dad, atheists are really mad at God. <laughs> but yeah, so, so to me, if, if I start with science can only explain how this happens with an equation, and that once I've done that, I've solved the problem, you're really missing the point. I've never been satisfied with that, even as a secular engineer. Right, but if, if your presupposition is nature is all there is, then the best you can do is explain how nature works. That is the best you can do. And that's what Sean Carroll, who is, again, candid in his article, says, the best we can do. In fact, he's almost got one that the, that's the exact word, the best we can do is have an, an equation that describes what's going on. It's it, not it, satisfying. It, 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 well, it, it flows from the presupposition that the natural world is all there is. Yeah. You know, atheists like to think that they're open-minded, that they're free thinkers, but like everyone, they have presuppositions that shape their worldview and, and prescribe what their conclusions are going to be, yes. even before they get there. Almost inescapably so. Almost inescapably so. Dr. Strauss, let's change gears again. Let's get more towards the heart. You deal with students and other professors. What is it about the heart of man that causes him to turn to himself as God rather than God? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I am hesitant to speak about other people's hearts except for two things. One is I know my heart and I share the human experience with others. Okay. And, and the second is God talks a little bit about the human he heart. He does, right? doesn't he? In Romans and, 1 and 2. And throughout scripture, throughout right? Scripture. The, the, first, the first rebellion against God was because we could be like God, right? There you go. So yeah. there's the answer to your question in some sense. There's something within humans that we want to be in control, we want to be God. So do you communicate with your students and young people that you're just associated with at the university in that way? You know, there are students who get to know me as an individual and come into my office and share more issues. They're struggling with the human experience like we all struggle with, right? And I think the answers um, are not pat answers but they're answers that have been around for a long time. Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, said that inside everyone is a God-shaped vacuum that only Christ can fill. That answer is still the answer today. You know, I, I think there's something about young people, millennials, that seems to be more reluctant to ex maybe, maybe it's the diversity, maybe it's the fact that everything has to be acceptable, that all everyone has to find their own truth that seems more reluctant to say you know there might be an answer to life that is the same for everybody 
and it's getting to know Jesus and having him as in your life as your savior and and I think partially because of this culture of everybody has to find their own truth and, and diversity it's harder to say you know this is the answer but it is the answer um, if we were if we had a society not that just like it was before the 50s that externally followed Christ but if we had a society where every individual had Christ as their Lord and Savior what did the problems would be solved <laughs> right oh my I just love the way you put that but but that's the answer right how how do I affect society it's not by standing on the street corner and protesting it's by me getting to know someone and sharing with that person how much Jesus loves them and how Jesus can make a difference in their life and having society change not from the outside in but from the inside out that's how Jesus has always done it have you ever led anybody to the Lord in your office talking about these things? Have you ever gotten anybody to go from atheism to theism? Let me tell you a few stories. Okay, okay. good. When I give these talks on science and Christianity, they're kind of an icebreaker. For an atheist, it's kind of like saying there really are reasons to investigate Christianity. And I've had many people come to me and say, you don't know me, but three years ago I heard you speak on um, scientific evidence for God. I was an atheist at that, at that time, and it started me on a journey to become a Christian. And then they'll share their story of how that was the first um, spark that led them on their journey to become a Christian. And I think what the, what the intellectual thing can do is it can break down some of the barriers to say, that Christianity is intellectually viable. In fact, the science points to the Christian God. So now I'm free to investigate some of the other things of Christianity. That's a wonderful way to start, isn't it? It's a breakdown of a barrier, yeah. a very hefty barrier, yeah. that then gives them a clear, not a clear path, but at least a, a clearing of the path on the way to the house of salvation. Yeah, but the other thing that I've learned is that it's not just the intellectual. So when I was a graduate student, I had a very good friend, and we would talk a lot about Christianity. And to me, I wanted to be really sensitive to him, so I didn't push it on him. But we would talk a lot, and it was mostly on you know, the intellectual part. And through a series of incidents, um, this friend of mine got to know another friend of mine who lived with us for a while. And, and the, the other friend of mine was um, a Christian. And he would get up at 6 a.m. in the morning and start singing hymns. So my non-believing friend heard him sing hymns, because we lived together, at 6 a.m. When my non-believing friend eventually became a Christian, he said something to me that was really indicting. He said, you know, you, you taught me a lot about Christianity, but this other guy showed me how much he loved God when he would get up and sing. And what I realized is that it's true of me too. It's not just that intellectually I think Christianity is defensible and satisfying. It's because I really love God. So what I've learned is in conversations with people who ask me about why I'm a Christian and, and the intellectual part, I want to eventually bring it around to Christianity isn't just defensible, you know, um, through an intellectual argument. Christianity is ultimately about a relationship with Jesus, that I love him, that he loves me, and that even somebody like myself who is a thinking person, operates so much on the intellectual level. 
it's like a relationship with my wife, a relationship with my kids, my relationship with Jesus, there's a relationship of love. And, and when you begin to share that, you realize that it's like other relationships. There's an intellectual aspect to it. My wife and I talk about intellectual things, but there's something much deeper. And that deeper love relationship is what is the most satisfying thing in life. It, it, the, if, if you are out there and you're not satisfied with life um, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it is impossible for me to convey the depth of peace and satisfaction that that relationship can bring. Does it mean that that relationship is always great? That it always seems to be working? No, no relationship is like that. But it's like, you know, the, the outstanding marriage or the outstanding friendship that deep down is so satisfying and so real um, and so peaceful that there's nothing like it. And, and for some people, that has to start by breaking intellectual barriers. But if it ultimately doesn't end with that deep relationship, that's what Christianity is all about. Amen. And you know, there are times when I think God is disappointing me. He's not there for me. He's distant. But the more I get to know them, Him, the more I realize it's just that um, His ways are different than my ways. He's got higher purposes and bigger purposes, and He sees more than me. So it's like a parent who you know, has something great for his child, but it's not given in the way the child expects. And this is how God is like. Um, Would you mind going a little bit further down that path? I know quite a few people who reject God because of a personal vendetta against yeah. him or an anger towards him. I mean, when someone comes to me with a painful experience and asks me, why did God allow this? My straightforward, honest answer is, I don't know, right? I don't know why God does things that He does. I don't know why He allows challenges or pain in my life that I don't want. But I do know what Isaiah 55 says. It says, My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts above yours. If I was writing that God is different than me, and I wanted to give an analogy, the, the biggest difference in the universe is as high as the heavens are above the earth. <laughs> so I don't know that the writer knew that the universe, the visible universe is a sphere 92 billion light years across. <laughs> Probably. Well, God the author would know that, but, God, just, but that, the human author would never have that, known that's that. That's just the visible universe. And, and for the writer to say that God is as different than me as the entire distance of the universe is, says to me, you know, if I want to put God in my box and say, he disappointed me because he didn't do things the way I'd like, then I'm really saying, um, he must be the same as me, but he's not. And, and I think my relationship with God, and I, other Christians would agree with me, is I put God in a box and he comes to me and says, your box is too small. So I make my box a little bigger, right? And he comes to me again and says, your box is too small. And the reason he, the reason I feel hurt and disappointed is because my box is too small, not because God is, is doing something that's not for my best. 
the other thing I just want to say, you know, since your audience is young people, is so much of uh, uh, the millennials' take on life is experiential, right? The, the walk with God is experiential. What I would say is if something is, is, if something works for you, that doesn't make it true. But if something is true, it's going to work for you. And if Christianity is true, and if this relationship with Christ is true, your experience with it is going to be real and exciting. Again, it's not always going to be a bed of roses. It's not, God's not going to do things in your life like you want, but um, all the time. A lot of times he does, which is really cool. <laughs> but it's, it's a real dynamic experience. It's amazing. You can't have an experience with a dead person. So Jesus must be alive because I have an experience with him. <laughs> so many of us have, yeah. and praise God for that. Yeah. Do you ever get into conversations about uh, heaven? I can get into conversations about whatever people talk to me about. <laughs> so, <laughs> Salvation. I, I'll, I'll tell you the, the cool thing about heaven, right? We have a new heaven and a new earth. So I'm a physicist. The laws of physics are going to be different. I got a whole new job. <laughs> <laughs> wonder what the laws of physics will be. I have no clue, but I get to start all over again. <laughs> I don't know if I have to earn another PhD or what. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. If you're a Christian, our goal is to give you confidence to defend what you believe with good, solid reasons. And if you're a non-believer, well, then we try to give you pause to think, to reconsider your worldview, and to ponder whether these things are true. Francis Crick was the co-discoverer of the structure of the DNA molecule back in 1953. He said that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed. We know it looks designed because it was designed. Not only was it designed, but like all things designed, it was designed for a purpose. You were designed for a purpose too. Well, I'm Ben LaCourt, and this has been the Young Lions Podcast. I'll leave you with steps one and two. Step one is this. If we can come alongside you or someone you know, contact us at reasonstobelieve.org. That's reasons, the number two, believe.org. Tell us your story or simply ask that question that's been on your mind. And step two, as it says in the Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you have hope. And if you don't have hope, well, go back to step one. Here's to hope, purpose, and the great designer of the universe.